Real quick before we dive into this episode of the podcast, be sure to grab your free PDF copies of my latest books at frugal.show forward slash free. Now on to the show. If you haven't already, be sure to grab your free copy of my first two books, Frugalpreneur and Authorpreneur, by going to thesarahstjohn.com forward slash free. That's T-H-E-S-A-R-A-H-S-T-J-O-H-N dot com forward slash free. Now on to the show. Welcome to the Frugalpreneur Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah St. John, and my guest today is the host of the popular podcast, The Solopreneur Hour, and I'm so excited to have him on. I'm a listener of his show, and I think that this episode will be amazeballs for your earballs. (laughs) For people who are not familiar with your show, that is an expression. Well, the the earballs is an expression you like to use in your show, and I, I think that's pretty funny. A lot of your guests, they seem kind of confused, like... What is that? That's true. You know, you haven't actually introduced me yet. So I wouldn't, I wasn't sure if I was supposed to talk. Oh, whoops. I got carried away. I'm so sorry. I'm the okay. Voice of God, ladies and gentlemen. I have actually never made that mistake before. I, I love just it. got carried away. Okay. It. This is Michael O'Neill with hey. the Solopreneur Hour podcast. Hi there. How are you? <laughs> For the listeners who aren't familiar with you, can you give us a little background, your, your story on how you got into podcasting? I launched in 2013. And I weirdly, and I think because of the pandemic, I didn't even notice that I had crossed 10 million downloads. It went unnoticed by me because I just looked and it's 10 million, 30,000 something or another in my stats today. And I said, holy crap, I, I, this was probably a big milestone because it was, you know, you don't get to pass a, a million very often. So that was seven years ago now. And the, the, let's see, the super long, I mean, super long story, uh, short and it takes 22 minutes to do the story, so I won't do it now, (laughs) is that I was doing production for another show, and they were climbing Mount Kilimanjaro, and we needed a show, and the show must go on, because I've been in showbiz for a long time. And so I jumped on and did a little 45-minute episode on how to use social media to grow your solopreneur business, and I did that February 14th, 2013. And then a bunch of people wrote and said, you should do that. That should be a thing you do. And then I had this great conversation with Pat Flynn, who is another online entrepreneur dude who runs a great website called Smart Passive Income. And we had had lunch in San Diego. And uh, he and I sat and for a couple hours and we talked about life and we talked about cars and we talked about fashion and we talked about girls and we talked about everything except smart passive income, which is the thing that he always talks about all the time whenever he's being interviewed or whatever. And he stopped in the doorway and he said, dude, thank you. I never get to do that. And I thought, what an interesting idea for a show. What if I brought people on and sort of talked around the thing that they're so good at, but we really got to know them because if I can learn who you are as a person, I can find out why you made the, the decisions you did. And I think it's a, a way to feed fundamental into someone who's a burgeoning entrepreneur versus a tactic, which tactics come and go. Timing of tactics come and go. You know, what worked on Instagram a year ago doesn't work now and, and YouTube and Facebook and name the platform. But if I can teach you the fundamental on why 
someone made the decision that they did and why they trained themselves in a certain way, well, then you get a lot more out of it and it's got a lot more longevity to it. Yeah. And one thing I've noticed about your podcast, there's two things that you do differently than anyone else that I know of, is that you don't use software to record and I don't think you edit your podcast. It's just a straight take and that's what you put up. Is that correct? Yeah. Yes, on both counts. The first one is because I came, I shouldn't say I came from broadcasting, but my mom was in radio. I grew up around Howard Stern and all the morning radio guys and, you know, Johnny Carson and then Jay Leno. The other thing is I don't batch shows. And I often when I record, I put it out that day or the next day. So it's very topical as well. And I do that because that's how it's that's how the pros do it. They record to hardware. I co-hosted a show with a, an NFL player called Heinz Ward who played for the Pittsburgh Steelers. And we got to go to the Super Bowl. And they have a thing called Radio Row, which is like all the radio stations from all over the world that are covering the Super Bowl pile into a ballroom. And then they they set up little mini radio stations at these folding tables. And then, you know, all the celebrities and athletes bounce from table to table to table for two days. And they do these quick little 10 minute, 15 minute interviews. But if you're getting like, you know, Jerry Rice and Cuba Gooding Jr. and blah, blah, blah you don't have time to muck with uh, a, a piece of software crashing or some sort of weird failure or a glitch like you and I just went through. Like well, I, I say you and I, but it was really me trying to get my, my USB to interface with this computer. That doesn't happen with hardware. If I'm plugged in via analog into my headphone port and then via my microphone port, there's almost nothing that can fail. You know what I mean? In fact, the thing that caused me the delay to record today was an HDMI cable on my other machine. So it's very rare that hardware fails. And then with that in mind, I walked into this Super Bowl thing with a very open mind. And I said, all right, what are the pros using? And almost to a station out of 250, probably 97% were using microphones plugged into a mixer, plugged into a recorder. And almost nobody was using software recording. So software recording really came from the podcast world and a little bit in the pro audio world. But like you ask any sound guy that works at a live show, like Foo Fighters aren't using, you know, software to, to do their show. They're plugged in with, with microphones into things that work over and over and over again. So that's that part. The second part is the editing. I feel so strongly that as a podcast host, we should be good at our jobs, that I consider the show being live to tape. So it's like almost like I'm doing it live in the 60s as a television show. I should be good enough to not only keep the conversation going, but to work without a net, meaning you're working without editing, means that you've got to be a better host than the other person. So you've got to learn to ask better questions. You've got to make it entertaining. You've got to have done a little bit of research. You've got to introduce your guest well. You've got to plug them over and over and over instead of waiting till the end of the show. Like There's things to do as a professional host that most people that are like in the marketing podcast world don't know. They either don't know how or they haven't even bothered because their favorite podcaster has made so much money. But the reality is their favorite podcaster is not really a very good podcaster. So I try to be good at the job. In fact, it's funny you say this. I did an interview yesterday. Not only did it go kind of long, which I'm usually okay with. There was a part like the last five, 10 minutes of the show where like 
I got into this weird, almost contentious coaching session with this client who really needs it, but is really resistant to coaching. And I debated keeping it in, but I said, you know what? I haven't edited yet. And it's been 814 shows, so I might as well keep going. So it's in. I look forward to hearing that episode. When will that go live? It went live this morning. Oh, yeah. Okay. It's episode well, 8, I mean, 814 with Jay Ryan. Okay. I'll have to check that out tomorrow then. Yeah. Um, Curious about your it, feedback from it. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely give you feedback. So before we started recording, we were talking a little bit and you were getting into, well, because we're recording via Squadcast, which has video and you had turned off the, the video component and said that it's actually better to record just audibly. And that was different than anything I had ever heard before because I had always assumed or heard that when you can see the other person, you can kind of take cues, physical cues from them nodding their head or knowing when they might cut off or in their sentence to where you can get in and whatnot. But you were talking about how it's actually better to do it the other way around. And I was wondering if you could go over that for the audience. Before I do, I'm curious about your, when I explained why, did it make sense to you? Yes, it did make sense. So there's been a trend really in the last, I'd probably say like two years, maybe a year and a half of people putting a video component into their podcasts and putting them on YouTube and wondering why that's getting 17 views and nobody's paying attention to it. And the reason why is because when we think about, well, I'll, I'll break it down from a, a physiological standpoint. So you and I could be having a conversation in person or via video. And like you mentioned, I might be using hand gestures or I might nod at you, or I might blink a certain way or smile or whatever. You can tell when I'm, you know, when I'm joking or whatever. All great. If that's the way the media is going to be consumed, people can see that. And it's great. Problem is with podcasting is 97, 98, 99% of the people listen to it while they're on the treadmill or walking the dog or driving to work or whatever. They're not generally logging into YouTube to watch two talking heads, which is really what it is. Like you've got, you know, someone on the left side of the screen and somebody on the right side of the screen. It's not like there's a multiple camera shoot. We're in the same room. There's a beautiful set. There's lighting. That's typically not the case. Sometimes it is. You know, Joe Rogan certainly has that going on. Joe Rogan is also a professional broadcaster who's been doing it for 20 plus years. So to me, the biggest advantage of podcasting is that Everybody says, I love listening to your show because it feels like I'm right there with you. It's an intimate type of show versus radio because it's very one-to-one -one versus radio, which is very one-to-many. Hi, welcome to uh, Driving Weather in the Tens. Right? And you sort of feel like you're part of this big group that's paying attention to this. But radio doesn't feel intimate. Podcasting really feels intimate. You can sometimes hear people's breath and you can hear their dog barking in the background and you can hear that there's like a real conversation and you're sitting at the, the coffee table or the, uh, you know, the, the coffee shop with them having this conversation. The problem is when you turn on video and just the hosts have the opportunity to see eye contact and facial expressions, 80% of our communication is sublingual. So all of that intimacy that we built up by people listening to the show has been broken because they're not in on it anymore. Now it's just us that are in on this little one-to-one -one laughing kind of communicative thing. But because we don't need to, we stop painting the theater of the mind. 
So we don't do the thing that is the most important part of podcasting, which is building these visuals with our voice that most people will be able to consume. We resist or we don't use those visuals when we actually see each other and we don't have to. So it's almost a crutch that gives worse results than if we didn't have it. So often if I'm ever interviewed on other people's shows and they want video on, I, I say, okay, that's fine. But I put a screen in front of their face. I don't see them. And I do that because if, think about two things. Number one, when you were a kid and you were on the phone and it was two in the morning, you were talking to your best friend or some boy or some girl you liked in high school. And it was like, you'd been talking since like 1030 and it's 2 a.m. And your eyes are closed and you have this amazing imagination about what you are speaking of and you're describing it with these beautiful, rich words. Or I say, hey, I want you to listen to a song right now. And I have a really fancy set of headphones, Sarah. And I go check this song out. You put the headphones on. What's the first thing you do? Close your eyes. You close your eyes. You block that visual because you really want to absorb the audio that's coming into your ears. So if I can help it, I don't like anybody to have video on for their regular podcasts. What I would suggest is if you have a regular show, great. But then on occasion, if you have people in studio and you do have a beautiful setup, well, have that be like a separate thing. Like have that be your YouTube show. And if you want, you can maybe, you can extract the audio for podcasting. But even then, I don't think it has the same impact. That's really interesting. That does make sense. And you see a lot of people who are doing video podcasts. Well, that's not really a thing. They're recording in video and, and putting that up on YouTube, like you said, and then stripping the audio, of course, for the podcast episode. So I guess that's not something that you would recommend then. You would no. recommend doing those no. two separate things. Yeah. And I wouldn't even recommend doing the video thing, if ever, for a few months. Like first shake out the podcast and see if anybody cares about your show and about what you have to say. And if they do, then you go, okay, cool. Maybe we can do something cool with this. Like a good example is one of my little side podcasts is called Beginner Audio File. It's all about high-end audio and like what it's like to really experience music again. Because a lot of people that are younger have literally have never heard their own music. And what I mean by that is if you grew up around like MP3s and streaming via Bluetooth, You've literally never heard your favorite band before. Th that's not hyperbole. That is completely true because if you went to somebody that had a like a fancy stereo at their house with two speakers and a nice setup and they played your favorite music in high resolution, you wouldn't recognize it. It would all of a sudden be expansive in 3D and you could place the instruments in different places. And it's very different what was actually recorded versus what most people listen to. So I set up this podcast for it because it's fun and I like gear. And I knew if I reviewed a bunch of gear, I could get a bunch of cool free stuff, which I have. Well, that show gets between, I don't know, five and 7,000 downloads per episode. It's a very nice, targeted, niche kind of show. But I would never dream of doing a video podcast of that show. What I would dream of doing is taking that audience porting them over to YouTube for an unboxing video or a review of a particular piece of gear where I could just like have that one piece of gear. So I would be using each platform the way it's meant. You know what I mean? I want each one to be its own entity instead of one or the other. But I would wait a few months before I launch the YouTube for sure.
Okay, those are good points. So yeah, basically record for the platform that it's intended for. Yeah. Okay. Because everyone these days is like, oh, video is king and you got to do video. But I guess only if it's, if that's its main or it's only what it's going to be used for. Well, how many video podcasts do you consume? None. Like, do you go to YouTube to listen to podcasts? No, I mean, I go to YouTube to watch videos, like you said, as far as you know, like screen share type of stuff where they're teaching you something or... Yeah, right. If there's uh, slides or something like that. But everyone who's thinking about starting a podcast out there, think about how many podcasts you consume on YouTube. Just that's all. And if it's equal, then you should totally do it. It sounds great. If you're like, actually, I never pay any attention to podcasts on YouTube, then there's your answer. And you had mentioned that audiophile show. What other shows have you produced? Hundreds. Because my, you know, my little side, the way I make a lot of money is to help people launch world-class podcasts. So a lot. But on my own, I've done the Solopreneur Hour. And of course, available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Beginner Audiophile. I was the co-host of the Heinz Ward show for a year in 2016, and that was really cool. I'm a huge Steelers fan, so to be able to do a show with a retired Hall of Fame Steeler was really fun. So that was like another one. I did a little, let's see, what else? Well, right now, I'm mainly focusing on YouTube, if I'm being honest. For about 18 months, I've had a vintage Porsche-based YouTube channel called Wrench, R-E-N-N-C-H. And at the moment, I'm taking a 1969-911 race car and converting it back into a street car. So I'm 21 videos into that at the moment. And that channel is really getting momentum, which I'm really excited about. It's been a slog. I think maybe this is a great lesson for people. If there's any one piece of advice when you're launching anything, especially on a budget, it's patience. Do not expect that you're going to launch a podcast and then you're going to launch a mastermind group and then you're going to be doing live speaking and write a book in the first six months. It ain't happening. So knowing full well that this is the case, I started building this YouTube channel. I think it was May 2018. So maybe I'm about two years in is when I launched it. But then it really sort of officially launched last September when I bought this project car. And I knew like if you're going to build a YouTube channel around cars, you need a big long term project car. So I started building this thing. As of today, I have 3,800 subscribers. But here's how the evolution went, which has been really cool. Think about this for like 18 months, right? First, I was psyched if I got three figures. So if any of my videos got over 100 views, I was excited. And mind you, when I started this, my podcast probably had 8 million listens. I traveled all over the world teaching people how to be better podcast hosts all about branding, all about like, I mean, podcasting had been my world and I had some notoriety in that space. So to go back to being brand new and unknown at anything was sort of simultaneously, you know, humbling, but also kind of thrilling because I, I do most of my shows about teaching people similar stuff to what you're doing, which is like, Hey, if you want to start a thing, here's the process of how to start a thing. And not everybody has a bunch of money to throw at it. So you pick yourself up by your bootstraps and plug away. So for me to get like a hundred viewers on a video was like a thrill. That was awesome. I'm like, cool. It's a hundred people. And then, you know, I kept putting more and more out and I'm putting, you know, doing video, multiple clips, you know, you're editing 80 clips that is six or seven hours of footage into 15 minutes. So it's six to eight hours 
of editing and, and I'm much faster at it now than I was before, but it used to take me like two days to edit a video and I'm doing all that for 128 views. You know, it's like, all right. But in the back of my mind, I thought, but this is what you do. This is how this goes. There's no shortcut to patience. You just have to deal with this. And so I cranked away and cranked away and cranked away and kept putting videos out and putting videos out and putting videos out. And then I started getting to like 500 views. It's like, cool. I had not broken four figures yet, you know, where it's like a video got, you know, a thousand views. But YouTube is so evergreen. And if you title it right and you've got the right kind of tags and stuff involved, it's going to continue to grow over time. So when my video started getting like a thousand views, which was, I don't know, 12 to 14 months into it. And I'm still a baby. I'm still 1,200 subscribers. And I hadn't been monetized yet. It was like, you know, it's a slog. So that was a big deal. And so then I took a lot of time off because I didn't have the car yet. I didn't really have anywhere to work on it. And I really just started building again in March of this year. I moved to Long Beach to a huge, I got a huge garage. I moved here just for the garage, just so I could do this car. Talk about commitment. It's true. I'm not even kidding. I I found a place with a four-car garage. And I said, well, I can't build my YouTube channel out of a single car garage and that's already occupied in San Diego. I need something else. So, you know, not only did I buy the car for a chunk of cash, but then, you know, moved my whole life to, to come here so I could build this YouTube channel and be more immersed in this community. Cause that's the thing I wanted to do. I wanted to be involved in this vintage Porsche community. So, you know, you got to make commitments to those things. So I did that. I mean, cranking and cranking and cranking. These videos I was putting up were getting 676 views and 724 views and something like that. And then they would sort of just start creeping. A couple of them crept over, you know, 1.1, 1.3. And so that was exciting. And then literally like three weeks ago or so, Sarah, it started bubbling. I could see it. So I could like all of a sudden it was the video was getting a thousand views in like a week which was like, yes, that's cool. Like people are starting to pay attention. I'm getting more subscribers by the day. And now my last two videos that I've done last week and this week have gotten a thousand views in the first 24 hours. And I'm really seeing a thickening trend where like now it's 20 and 30 and 40 subscribers per day. Like it's starting to bubble up. And I honestly think that if I have 10,000 subscribers with this YouTube channel, that I can make it into a six-figure business. I honestly think I can monetize it to six figures with 10,000 because if you choose a good niche and you know how to ask for sponsors and you know the concept of lifetime customer value, you can really monetize a very niche-based show without a huge audience. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Yeah, that definitely shows uh, dedication and patience. And I think that's true with whether you're starting a podcast or a YouTube channel or anything. Any business, any type of business. Yeah. Got to be patient. I mean, I'm talking patient for years, mm-hmm. not like for weeks or months or why isn't this thing working or why is that person speaking at this conference and I'm not? Well, because they've been doing it now for 11 years. Your YouTube channel, that obviously is a good example of what we were talking about as far as when you should have a YouTube channel, because obviously what you're doing is very show and tell, so to speak. Like it's very visual, visual, visual. Yes. And so (laughs) that's definitely not really something you could do with a podcast. So not even a little bit, nor would I want to. Although here's what I'll say. One of my I'd like to cross a bit over. I mean, obviously, I have a lot of interviewing experience. And I thought, well, it'd be really cool to interview the 
because I now where I moved, I'm in like the heart of Porsche guru builders and engineers and things like that. Well, it'd be really cool to get some of these guys into my new garage, which I've built into this event space and do a, a one-on-one interview with them. That I would probably make a little podcast out of. I would just make it one series. If I bring like Rod Emery and Jay Leno and Magnus Walker and a bunch of these Porsche guys with notoriety, and I do one, maybe I do 12 interviews, I would all I would do is just upload all 12 at the same time. And it would just be a season. And I would just have those things be on iTunes, funneling people to the YouTube channel. It's It would have only one single goal, which would be one call to action, which would be send people to subscribe to my YouTube channel. I wouldn't continue to do it. I would only have those interviews. And then I would have a call to action to send them to build the YouTube channel, maybe buy some merch or something like that. But that's, yeah, that's- an example of how I might combine my two worlds. Yeah, that would be awesome to get Jay Leno. Speaking of which, I know you've had a lot of big name guests on your Solopreneur Hour show. I'd love to have, you know, like Barbara Corcoran and, you know, big names like that at some point. What tips do you have on how to approach that? This is why I think it's so critical to be good as a podcast host. This is this is specifically the thing you're asking is why you want to be a pro. Let me ask you a question on this. And again, anybody that's a podcaster out there, answer this honestly to yourself as I ask this. How often, Sarah, do you make it to the very end of a podcast, like closing credits? Probably about 90% up until the closing credits. And then, but I don't usually listen to the closing credits. But like you, you'll make it to where they start saying goodbye? Yeah, most of the time. It's great. The, the answer to that is about 15% of people make it through the closing credits of a podcast. Oh, wow. It's very low. When, huh. when do 99% of podcast hosts promote their guests? Probably at the end. So literally. But they should be doing. Literally, they are completely wasting the time of the person they just interviewed, who's hoping that they're going to get a plug for their book or for their website or for their brand or for their business. And they're wasting their time because they've completely blown it as a host of a show. When you go to Jimmy Kimmel or Jimmy Fallon or any actual professional broadcaster, it's the first thing they do. They'll say, our next guest has had two Emmy awarding or is that the most Emmy award winning uh, sketch comedy series of all time. He has a brand new Netflix special coming out August 15th and 16th. Ladies and gentlemen, Dave Chappelle. That's how a pro introduces a, a guest. And then the second they come on, They'll say, Dave, you've got a brand new Netflix special coming out, blah, blah, blah. And they'll plug that guest. You want to get the plugs out of the way at the beginning and the middle and the end of a show. You want your audience to know where to find those people. So that's part A. The second huge mistake that podcasters make is they say, where can people find you? And it's like, literally, it's your job as a host of a podcast to tell your audience where they can find your guests. It's like, if there was a, it's like, if you're going to make toast, it's the first line, which is like, put the bread in the toaster and push down. It's to tell your audience where they can find your guest. But because people grow up, I'm making air quotes. See, if I was on video, I would just do the air quotes and the audience wouldn't have known I did that. They've grown up around crappy marketing podcasters, not knowing anything about the history of broadcasting or how to actually be a host of a show. So they say, well, where can people find you? And it's like, dude, it's you specifically. Your job. So here's the answer to your question. When you want to get a Barbara Corcoran on, 
she's used to dealing with professional broadcasters. So if you want to not only get access to her, maybe the first guest is the hard one. And the first guest, the easiest way to get to those guests is to go to events that they're speaking at and buy a VIP pass. True story. Because then you're in a little venue with them and you strike up a conversation with them while sharing a whiskey. You say, hey, Barbara, I would love to have you on my show. You're really inspirational, blah, blah, blah. Well, here's what happens. She goes, yes, because she likes you. And then she comes on your show and you don't know how to introduce her. You don't know how to plug her. You wait to the very end of the show. You don't ask insightful questions because you've researched. And she's like, what a colossal waste of time I just spent with this nice person who I like, but there's no way that I'm going to recommend my friends come on their show. However, if they come on your show, if they can't tell the difference between being on your show and being on CNBC, which they were on the day before, because you plug them and you ask insightful questions and it's interesting and they talk about stuff they don't always have to talk about. Then when you hit stop on that recording, you go, hey, that was great. They go, man, that was really amazing. That was like the best podcast interview I've done. Then you can say, you know what? I thought so too. I would love, like, who else do you know that would be a great fit for the show? And they go, oh, you got to talk to blah, blah, blah. Because guess what? Ballers, no ballers. So when they're on your show and they have a great time, they will recommend you to their friends because most podcasts are crap. So that's the real answer with not only how to get good guests, but then how to continue to have good guests. Be known as the best interviewer. Yeah, that's a good point. What I'd like to have her specifically on for is because she has that book called Shark Tales, and it's basically about how she started a billion dollar business with only a thousand dollars. And this podcast is about building a business with like a hundred dollars. And so I thought that that would be a good parallel or something to have her on and talk about how she started with a thousand bucks. And then now she's worth over a billion or maybe more now, but there's um, never been a better time than now to start a, a business. There's never been an easier time. I'll put it that way. There's, we have so much free stuff you want to learn how to do something, you go to YouTube and you learn it, whether it's a trade or a tech or a piece of software or whatever. You've got to choose what to be involved in. But my methodology on that is what industry do I want to be? Like, what do I like? What's the thing I like in my life? And, and I had built this vintage Porsche 15 years ago. And, you know, I go to these events in Southern California. I really love those events. I think it's really cool to be able to look at these cars and see these people that have built these amazing pieces of art. And I also love to drive them. And I love the passion behind it. I love the brand. There's so much about this brand that I dig. I was like, I really want to be around that more. How do I do that? So then I created my Wrench brand. And then I created the vehicle to promote the Wrench brand. Wrench is ultimately going to be a retail store where I'm like, I have an actual place, but I can't do that until I prove the concept. I can't prove the concept until I build the channel. Can't build the channel until I get the car done and, and built and established authority in the space. And I'm seeing it happen, but it's super slow. But the bottom line is I wanted to be around that world. So I went to where that world was. Matt Damon, Will Hunting could have been a janitor at any school in the world, but he was a janitor at MIT. So <laughs> where do you want to be? Like, what's the thing you want to be around and then start creating and learning about businesses that are congruent and adjacent to that 
type of business or that type of industry or that that hobby that you're in. Yeah, that's a good point as well. Surrounding yourself with the the people that you want to become or be like. Yeah, I mean, honestly, that's, you know, it's cliche that you're, you're the some of the five people you spend the most time with, but it's very true. And I also love the the addendum to that, which is, and you are one of the five. You know, our internal dialogue, that imposter syndrome that happens all the time with all of us, we have this crazy internal dialogue that's constantly tearing ourselves down and we've got to fix that voice. But also, who else are you around? One of my favorite pieces of advice is stop taking advice from broke, unhappy people. And people do it all the time. And by the way, a lot of them are their family members. At some point, you got to say, F this. And I'm going to, I really want to do this thing. And I'm just going to go do this thing. Just because you have done this mom or dad or brother doesn't mean I have to do this. I don't have to live like this. I'm going to go do the thing that I want to do because I want to do it. Well, what's the vehicle to do it? You want to create passive income? I mean, the, the best thing you can do right now, especially when we have a, a pandemic and there's not a lot to do. I have a set of books called The Sexy Seven. These books are critical to your success as a, uh, what I would call a solopreneur. And to me, if you read these books, and by the way, I won't work with anybody that hasn't. Like if you're going to be one of my private coaching clients, you have had to have read these books so that you understand my perspective on how I'm coaching you. It's just the way it is. And it's the price of admission. So if you read these books in this order, you can open up your front door that you've had for the, your whole life, but you're going to open it up to a completely different landscape. You're going to see a completely different world if you read these books. So the first one is Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki. That to me defines the vocabulary of the wealthy. And wealth in this case is defined as a measure of time and not as a, a monetary figure. And what I mean by that is he says, how long can you maintain your current lifestyle without working? That's the definition of wealth. So if your bills are... $3,000 a month all in, and you have $6,000 in the bank, you are wealthy for two months. Okay. So the goal is to match your passive income or income you don't have to work an hourly job for to that monthly output. And you would do that by doing things like affiliate marketing, network marketing. You could have a house that you get paid rent any number of ways that you can bring in income every month. Could be life insurance, could be whatever. And as those things come in, if that number of passive income matches the number that you are putting out every month, if that's all it's doing, you are wealthy. So if you've got bills that are $3,000 a month and that's it, and you can live and you can pay rent and you can eat and you can be entertained, and then your passive income is $3,000 a month. Guess what? You're wealthy. That's what that mm -hmm. looks like. You start making more money on top of that. Well, that's how you become rich. And that's different. But rich dad, poor dad defines what I consider the vocabulary of wealth. His second book is the second book in the Sexy Seven series, which is called Cash Flow Quadrant. So if the vocabulary is rich dad, poor dad, Cash flow quadrant gets you thinking about it in sentences, if you will. 
Book number three is The Four-Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss. And that, to me, starts getting people thinking along the lines of, oh, I didn't know this could be a business, right? People that are running like Etsy shops or people that are doing like, what is it, FBA on Amazon, fulfilled by Amazon. So they're, they're buying a, a container full of widgets from China and then they're selling them on Amazon or they're going to, they're doing, um, what's that called? Uh, they're doing price hacking where Walmart is selling a Monopoly game for $17, right? And it's super popular for whatever reason, maybe it's Christmas season or something and it's selling for $74 on eBay. So they go around to all the Walmarts and they fill their van with these Monopoly games and they sell them all on eBay and make thousands of dollars. It's those kinds of things that I think the four-hour work week does well. Like it really sort of hacks that. Number four is The E-Myth Revisited by Michael Gerber, who is notoriously the worst interview I've ever had on the Solopreneur Hour. Long story, but a curmudgeon. If there ever were a curmudgeon, Michael Gerber is a curmudgeon, but he wrote a book that was so good and so impactful for me that when I finished reading, I thought, oh, okay, this is how you structure a business to be wealthy. So you work on the business and not in the business. And it's really a great book. Number five is Strengths Finder 2.0 by Tom Rath. There may be a more modern version of this. I did read this book like 10 years ago now. So maybe Strengths Finder 2.0 is outdated. But basically what it does is it you go through, you buy the book. It's the only one of the seven that you have to buy brand new because it has a code so you can take a test online. And that test will tell you your five greatest strengths. And once you know what you're good at, then you know who to surround yourself with, right? Some other people that might fill in some of the blanks based on your E-Myth Revisited organizational flowchart, you'll know exactly who to build your business with. Number six is Crush It by Gary Vaynerchuk. Again, a little dated you know, it was a 2009 book about social media, but the thing I loved about it is that he taught concept and not tactic. He taught what I call the Harry Met Sally technique. I've been calling it that for years and years and years. And if you guys have never seen the movie When Harry Met Sally, it's Billy Crystal and Meg Ryan at her Meg Ryanist. She was adorable in this movie. And there's a very famous scene when they're sitting at the diner in a New York, in New York City and they dated for a minute. Billy Crystal says to Meg Ryan, oh, I could always tell when a woman faked it. I can always tell. And then she gives the performance of a lifetime in the middle of this diner. Yes, yes, yes. Just slamming the table. And of course, the whole diner stops and looking at this woman having this, this really amazing experience. And do you remember, Sarah, the next thing that happened in that scene? I don't want to put you on the spot if you've never seen it. I have seen it a few times. It's been a while. Um, so yes, yes, the yes. They get it, and then I'll, the waitress says to the woman, and then what does the woman I'll say? Have, the waitress. The woman says, "I'll have what she's." That's having. exactly right. So if you build all of your social media around this, is, I used to teach this. By the way, when I would speak on stage with this concept, I would start my session with that diner scene and talk about a pattern interrupt in the middle of like an insurance company. <laughs> it was great. It was great. But I'll have what she's having. What, what that means is instead of telling people how great you are, how great your show is, how great your product is, you show people how great your life is 
while you're using that product. The people that are out in like the MLM world, they're like, yeah, but this has like, you know, unicorn poop and it's so good and it developed in this Mars laboratory and like all this stuff that the people are really excited about. And by the way, I love that industry. I'm not knocking network marketing, but if you go to enough of those conventions, they all have a guy. Their guy has the one unique way to do the thing and they all have, it's all right, okay, whatever. But stop talking about the thing. Start showing me that you're hiking in the middle of the day with your two kids because you're making so much passive income that you don't need to work at the insurance company anymore. And now I'm interested. So I'll have what she's having. And then finally, the seventh book is called Zag by Marty Newmeyer. And Zag is... I spent 15 years as a branding guy. I was a designer and a branding guy. Everything I do has a slant towards, well, what's the brand? What's the message? What's the, do I, do I know as a consumer, having just met you or seen your company for the first time, what it is I'm going to get out of this interaction? You know, like what, it, what's in it for me? Which is, this is why I don't think people should have, uh, they should never name uh, podcasts after themselves. And they should never have their, pictures on their podcast. Cause who cares? It's like, like a, a real estate person having their picture on their business card. Why do I care what you look like? Like, why does that matter at all? What I want to know is how well, you know, this region. So you can put me in the best possible house for me and my family. That's what I want to know. Not that you had your hair blown out, you know, like whatever. So zag while everybody is zigging, you zag which is why you listen to my take on using video on podcasts. And it's probably different than a lot of the things you've heard. Well, guess what? Not a lot of those people you've listened to have 10 million downloads that have made a career out of podcasting. So like, I don't know. I just, you can point to scoreboard and go, all right, listen to whoever you want to, but you know. <laughs> right. Whose advice are you going to take? Well, I actually have all those books except for number five. And I've heard of number seven, but I don't, have that one. I was gonna say Zag. you have Zag. That's amazing. Right on. No, I, I've heard of it, but that's funny that you had mentioned Michael Gerber being a curmudgeon. I think is the word you used. Yeah, being nice. I've, I've heard other people say that as well. I need to listen to that interview you've done with him. How do you handle a difficult guest like that? What kind of tips would you have? I've never had a difficult guest. I've had some that give like one word answers. So I'm going to plug my own course, which is called The Art of the Interview. It's artoftheinterview.co, artoftheinterview.co. And it teaches all the stuff I've been talking about in terms of like how to be a good interviewer. But in that course, one of the things I did was this Mystery Science Theater 3000, where I took my interview with Michael Gerber and I did like a director's cut overdub. I was like, all right, so you hear I'm about to ask him this question and here's how he responded and here's what I had to do. It was really funny. It was a thrill for me to get him on the show. He was one of the only sexy seven authors that I've gotten. Really, that I've, I haven't tried that hard. But I was really excited because his, of all the books I just said, his was probably the most impactful for me, just how to structure this whole thing. So I'm stoked to get him on the show. And, it's, and I'm really, at this point, I was a little bit of big fish on campus because it, it wasn't like it is now. This was probably like 2014. So... Show was doing really well. It was always top 20 in, in, you know, management and marketing, you know, business podcasts. It was sort of what I would consider the heyday of like entrepreneurial podcasts. I think if you launch an entrepreneurial show now, you're, you're ambitious. I'll put it that way. So I always start my shows with a non sequitur on purpose. I always 
start by asking a guest something that I've just learned about them because I want them talking in stories and I also don't want them to regurgitate the same thing that they say on everybody else's show. Here's what I knew about Michael Gerber. He'd been traveling as a, you know, a, a, a real best-selling author, not like an Amazon one, but an actual New York Times best-selling author for 30 years. This guy's had one of the perennial game-changing business books in history. And I was so excited to interview him. So I got to say, Michael, so, so great to have you here. Uh, I said, you know, I think I led with something along the lines of, so you've now traveled for 30 years. You've been all over the world multiple times. I said, if I could right now could put you on a plane and you could travel anywhere you wanted to get the best meal you've had in those last 30 years, where would you go and what would you have? It's a great question. It's a great question. I stand by that question as a great question. Big pause, pregnant pause. I like my wife's cooking. Nothing huh. else. And I go, yeah, yeah, okay. But, but like if you had to, and I reframe it, if you had to, okay. And then he says, We have a garden in the backyard. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. <laughs> so mentally, brick wall, bang, like brick walled on that. Okay. So I don't always do like a bunch of questions for guests because I do like it to be organic and I do like to move around. I had a number of questions for Michael because there was some stuff that I really wanted to, you know, really wanted to learn. I really wanted the audience to hear. 15 minutes. I banged through those questions in like 15 minutes. He shut me down on almost every single question. Now I've got 45 minutes of an hour long show that I've got to fill. I've got filler I've got to do for 45 minutes. We almost argued, by the way. It was really funny too, because as I started the show, I'm sitting down, I'm at my desk. I've got my little, you know, my little Heil PR40 microphone at the time. I'm all good. I'm sitting, I'm relaxed. Within 10 minutes, I'm standing like I'm about to throw a punch, like my body is positioned like I could defend or throw a punch. True story. I'm standing, my microphone is at my mouth level, and I'm battling with this dude for 45 minutes. And I, and I hit stop, and we, we got off the call. And I remember thinking, that was the full extent of my capability as a broadcaster. He stretched my capability to the, to the limit. And if you listen to the show, I think you'll hear that it came off okay to the casual listener. But for anybody that studies this, like I do, like <laughs> my buddy called me the next day, who's also deeply immersed in like studying stage and hosting and blah, blah, blah. Chris Cerrone, wherever you are. He calls me the next day after I posted it and he goes, dude, Gerber. And I was like, dude. <laughs> I said it was friggin' brutal, like brutal. And you know, like, you know, who John Lee Dumas is, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. So he had, uh, what's his face from Kiss on? Uh, oh, long, long tongue dude. Gene, Gene, yeah, Gene Simmons. Gene Simmons, uh huh. If you listen to JLD's interview with, with Gene Simmons, he had a tidal wave roll over him. Like he had a steamroller roll over him. He got destroyed by Gene Simmons. 
And it was so like, I'm listening. I remember right where I was too. I was driving to the gym, listening, go, you poor guy. Like he was just getting crushed by this guy it, from an interview standpoint. If you listen to it, he was late by like an hour, already threw John off his game. And then he like had to call him and be like really abrupt. And John's a really planned, well thought out kind of guy. And he just demolished him. And I remember leaving the Gerber thing going, that didn't happen to me, but one more feather on my back and it would have. And I got demolished by a guy named Magnus Walker, who I just mentioned earlier in the show. I was, I had the flu and I went in to interview the guy and I couldn't get him off of his agenda. He knew how he wanted to answer every question and he knew how the narrative of the show and people don't do that on my show. Like it's my show. It's my narrative. It's my audience. You don't get to come on and just promote your thing. It's not how it goes. And I was sick with the flu and I couldn't battle him. And I just got <laughs> run over. I got run over on the show. Anyway, so it's tough when you've got to do this. And especially like what we talked about earlier, I'm live to tape. So if I get run over, you hear me get run over. That's the thing. So I do my best to work out in the gym so I don't get run over on live radio in front of all you guys. What episode numbers those two that you mentioned are the the Michael Gerber and then the the other one where you had the flu? Yeah, Gerber, Gerber Solopreneur Hour is 146. Okay. And then Magnus Walker is 191. Okay. And that might be helpful for the listeners. Yeah, I know, for sure. So and make sure you subscribe <laughs> to the Solopreneur Hour. Well, yeah, definitely. <laughs> Obvi. Obvi. It'll be totes amazeballs totes for your earballs. Ear earballs, you guys. <laughs> Find me on the Faceballs at faceballs.com slash soloballs. <laughs> Because everything ends in balls everything now. Everything is about balls. If we've learned one thing from the pandemic, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> everything is about balls. <laughs> well, that might actually be a good note to wrap up on. Um, no. I was going to... I've never heard a better note than that to wrap up on, but go ahead. <laughs> the only other thing I was thinking of asking you about was if you have any kind of like pre-show rituals before you record. Yeah, I do like 50 burpees. No, um, I, I have a bunch of questions that I ask. So that I have someone's, a lot of the stuff that we talked about earlier, which is like, as the host, I need to know about like what you're promoting, what all of your social media, what's, what's your favorite social media URL so I can plug you and plug you and plug you. Do you have a hard out? You asked me that. Like, do we have, do you have anything you're going to be missing? Well, I'm like, you know, pickleball. I was going into pickleball. And then like a little bit of their, I just have them like, give me a bit of a bio. And then, so ahead of time. We jump on, uh, you know, Skype or Zoom or whatever. I do have video on for this first little part. I say hello. I take in their environment. I like to see where they are, see if there's any posters on the wall, anything I can learn anything from. I think with Chris Ducker, I think I saw a like a Yoda or a Star Wars poster or something. Before you knew it, he was doing a yoga impression or Yoda impression on my car, on my on my show. On oh, my car. <laughs> He's doing a, a, a yoga impression on my car is what I just said. <laughs> a Yoda impression on my show. Where's my head? He'd never done that before on a show. And that was great. And, and I ask all those things, like you have a hard out, you have a, you know, whatever. And then I, and while we're talking, I'm actually adjusting their levels on my mixer. So that way I can get, if they're not nice enough to use a real microphone, I can fix their audio with my mixer. You know, I turn their, their treble down, turn their mid and bass up a little bit. And equalize their audio to me because we've already talked about, it, I don't edit. I don't edit levels either because my levels are perfect coming out of the recording. So my post-production 
takes about six minutes, if that. I drag the MP3 files in. I choose what intro I want. I move the outro to where it needs to be. I hit export. Like that's as much work as I have to do in my whatever the editing software is. And I listen to these people talking like, oh yeah, it takes me like four hours to edit. So I'm like, what are you, what are you editing? What on earth do you think people want, care about at this point? Like what if you just got better at not saying um all the time? What if that was the thing? Then it could save you four hours per episode. You're doing three episodes a week. Jeez. Anyway, so I do all that ahead of time just, just to get their audio right. And then I turn it off and then I, and then we hit record and we just go, we, we rock with it. But that's the, that's it. And, and, and if it's a, a bigger fish, I will do some other research. I, I tend to do a bit of research anyway. I even researched you a little bit and, and I like to just have a little bit of background on who I'm talking to or what the vibe of the show is if I'm the guest. But certainly if they're the guest on my show, I want to know what their favorite sports teams are and if they coach their kids' softball game or if they're into stand-up paddleboarding or anything that I can do to ask them a question that they've never been asked before. Yeah, I think it's important to do research on either end, whether you're the the guest or the host. One thing when I was doing research about you, well, I knew a lot already because of your show, but that you're a drummer, which I am also a drummer. No way! <laughs> Yeah, I haven't done it in several years, but... Um, Have you seen my drum yeah. room in my new place? No, oh, I, I haven't. So before we log off of this, I'll turn video uh -huh. back on and I'll show you how cool my, my new drum room is. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd love it's to awesome. see that. <laughs> Where do you live, by the way? I'm in Dallas, Texas. Oh, cool. All right. Well, so, so I'm curious, on a scale of 1 to 10, how am I as a host, nah. at least for this? That's great. <laughs> I'm putting you on the spot. Everybody ask a question nobody wants the answer to. Well, I, you haven't plugged uh, me once, so you uh, get demerits for that. Okay. Well, I did mention the solopreneur hour, but yes. That's true. Uh, like, well, how do people find me on Instagram or my wrench uh, thing or like any of that stuff? It's all right. We'll let you slide. But And, and I messed up the intro where I did. I don't care about that. Uh, That's no big deal. Okay. Yeah. that I That is one of those things that I don't think happens very often. I think it's that that may have been... I listen to this person's podcast nerves. Maybe I'm wrong. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. But I've, I've done stuff like that myself. Good job, dude. Well, well done. But no, I wasn't saying yours was, but I've done that to myself. But no, I actually, it's, I think you are very natural at this. I find you to be very natural at this. I'll tell you one thing. I thought you did great. When I was telling the Michael Gerber story and I very, was very intentionally pausing and I was doing that because I wanted everybody to feel how uncomfortable it feels for four seconds of dead silence on a show. When you, you're thinking, did, did Skype drop? <laughs> like, did Zoom? Did he hear what I just said? So when I was telling that, I was really hoping you weren't going to jump in and be like, yeah. And I, you didn't. And I thought that was great. So well done. Yeah. Yeah. I picked up on the fact that you were demonstrating how that interview went. So <laughs> getting, getting oh, wow. a guest to sit in their, in their energy for a minute is a, a fantastic way to suck an audience in. I mean, really to, and I, I've, I would say that I'm probably a C plus at this. Like if you were interviewing Obama, if you go back and watch mm -hmm. any interview that Obama does live and he's, you know, he's in front of a real pro, he's, he's so thoughtful 
And I mean that not like he's going to bring you flowers when you're, you're sick, but his, his answers are so intentional that he pauses really long. And it's really easy as an interviewer to try to fill that, that white space. And it's a great thing to not do it. Yeah, I think a lot of people are uncomfortable with that. And I try to be, I mean, I've probably filled a few gaps in, <laughs> in our interview, but I, I try to, you know, let the guests speak. And that's one thing with the video that I like is that you can tell by their facial expression if they're done or not. But you should be able to <laughs> tell I, that, though, because I yeah. think there's a good banter that happens when you get a pro on, you know, when they're done, you know, and it will go longer and you will have a chance. They will let you, a pro will let you back in. So like when I interviewed Jack Hanfield, it was like one of my favorite interviews because I remember looking at the audio file, like in my editing software, my words were, you know, it's two different lines, right? And mine were super short and then his were super long and mine were super short. And his were super long. And it was just this thing where I said, man, you can just give that guy, you know, a grain of rice and he will make jambalaya out of it. Like he just, he knows so much about not only what he wants to convey, but he's so good at conveying what he knows you want to convey to your audience. And that's the pro. That's a real pro. Mm, Versus yeah, like what cool. he wants to, it's one thing to impart your own agenda. It's another thing to recognize the other person's agenda and speak to that to their audience. You know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, see, I was waiting there intentionally to see like if you were wanting me to come and in there. I was there done. And then you're I was like, you know, <laughs> say something. Come on now. <laughs> what are you, deaf? Did you not hear me? No. <laughs> oh, man. All right, well, it's been well, a yeah, I appreciate your time. It's been over an hour, which actually this is probably the longest interview I've ever done. Huh. So if I had a nickel, <laughs> I mean, I am not kidding. I almost every interview I do is the longest interview anybody's ever done. I've never been accused of brevity. Oh. Well, I appreciate it though. I, I appreciate all the examples that you've given and advice and <laughs> I'm just happy to be able to turn my fans back on. Oh, that's right. I forgot about that. Yeah, but I think I've lost 17 pounds since we've been doing this. So that's been great. So people can find you at solohour.com. Yeah, for the nine people that are still left, thank you. It's solohour.com because nobody can spell preneur. Yeah. Or you can go to solopreneurhour.com. I like that it's called solopreneur and mine's frugalpreneur. I know. So look at that. Like we're preneur. We're uh, brothers and sisters in arms. And, and that course that you mentioned is artoftheinterview.co. That's right. I'll also have show notes at thesarahstjohn.com forward slash solo hour. Have you ever looked at the stats of how many people look at show notes? It's like three. You That's know, why I, I stopped doing them. I, I used to, I did them up oh. until about episode 500. Then mm -hmm. I thought, what am I paying these people for? Like nobody ever, went, no one was ever like, hey, so I was checking out the show notes. I really appreciate that you added this. But I was like, and I went to Joe Rogan way, which is just like one tiny little sentence. So if you're a big show notes person, write to Sarah and thank her for all that effort. Well, and my show notes aren't very extensive. They're more like a summary. I mean, if we talked about certain resources or like, for example, the course that you mentioned, I'll link to that, you know, things like that, uh, include some pictures and a bio and whatever, but I don't like do all the timestamp stuff. Yeah. It's a whole thing that nobody cares about. <laughs>
I feel like I've learned a lot. Uh, it's almost been like a private coaching. You all should just way. get the art of the interview.co and just get the course. And then you'd be good at podcasting everybody. That's right. That's the deal. <laughs> all right. Well, you have a good night and turn those fans on and play some pickleball. Yeah. All right. Thanks everybody. Thanks, Sarah. If you enjoyed and found value from this episode, I'd greatly appreciate it if you rate, review, subscribe, and share at ratethispodcast.com forward slash frugalpreneur. Until next time. Are you a frugalpreneur looking to connect with like-minded individuals? Join our community on Slack, connect with fellow listeners, Share your thoughts on episodes, engage in meaningful discussions, including money-saving tips and entrepreneurial insights, and help shape the future of the Frugalpreneur podcast. Plus, you can submit your questions in written or audio form to be featured on the show. Let's build a supportive space together. Join us now at frugal.show forward slash slack. See you on the inside.